Good morning. Good morning. The topic today is how to make a new year. Apropos to those who are Jewish, because tonight is the beginning of the Jewish New Year. But as I was preparing for Rosh Hashanah, it occurred to me that there are four elements that are practiced by observing Jews regarding the New Year and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which concludes the 10-day period we call the Days of Awe. There are elements in that practice that are really universal and that we can all adapt to our own situation. So given the fact that the January New Year is not that far away, I thought I would share these with you and just invite you to consider using them in one way or another as January approaches. So there are four elements. First one is forgiveness. So a month ago, because tonight is the beginning of the new year, so it starts a month in advance of the new year, Jews observe a period called slichot, which means forgiveness. And the idea is that you go around to everyone you know. Now, this, this is from a time when people lived in small villages, so everyone knew everyone. But you go around to the people you know, whether you know them well or not, though I suggest you focus on the few people you know well. And you ask them for forgiveness. Now, there's a formula for this. It's, I'll just read it to you. It says, if I have hurt you in any way in the previous 12 months, if I have hurt you in any way, knowingly or unknowingly, intentionally or unintentionally, I ask for your forgiveness. That's the whole liturgy. Right? You, just, you don't tell the person what you did. You might have something in mind. You might go and say, Oh, yeah, remember six months ago I rang your dog over? <laughs> well, I hope you can forgive me. And they'll go, you did that? I didn't know who did that. You did? So you don't actually provide the other person with an excuse to relive a trauma or to rekindle anger. But you simply say, if I've hurt you in any way, I ask for your forgiveness. Ideally, the other person says, you know, I forgive you. But there is no guarantee of that. And in the Jewish tradition, though this is a little esoteric as far as what we might do with it, but in the Jewish tradition, if the person doesn't forgive you, you have to go back and ask them three more times, two more times, total of three. And as you go back and, and ask again, you can bring with you friends to sort of help with <laughs> the pressure, right? To get the other person to say, okay, I forgive you. And in the end, you can even bring the rabbi. <laughs> they don't say anything. They just stand there and go, mm, you know, like that. <laughs> so, trying to get, that, get, get the other person to forgive you. But the actual focus of the month is not on you forgiving others, but on asking for forgiveness itself. It's a month of humbling. It's a month of saying, I, even if I don't know what I might have done, I'm sure I did something. So whatever it was, without trying to dredge it up, whether I did it on purpose or not, I ask for your forgiveness. It's a little awkward to do. So what I'm going to ask you to do is try it now. 
So find someone to talk to. Ideally, someone you're around a lot so that you really do need forgiveness. And just practice saying to another human being, if I've hurt you in any way, knowingly or unknowingly, intentionally or unintentionally, I ask for your forgiveness. That was not rhetorical. That was good. <laughs> so, does anyone need pressure? You want me to come over? And... <laughs> like Frank. <laughs> Don't laugh, Ryan. Ryan. <laughs> so, I mean, imagine doing this in December. You know, making this one of the non-tangible, intangible uh, gifts that you give Christmas time. You know, where you just ask someone for forgiveness. It's just sort of honoring the fact that we're all imperfect and humbling yourself because you don't make an excuse. It's not like, remember when I ran over your dog? Well, your dog was annoying, and you, know, you don't do that. You just humble yourself and ask for forgiveness. It's a, as the first step in creating a new year, it sort of makes peace with the last year. The second element in how to make a new year, and this is, I'm taking them all out of order here from the Jewish tradition because I think they work better this way if we're going to try something new. The second thing that you do if you're trying to make a new year comes from the Jewish tradition of kol nidre. Kol nidre literally means all. That's kol, K-O-L. Nidre are vows. And kol nidre was created uh, during the period of the Inquisition when Jews were forced to convert to Catholicism or die. You had a choice. You know, I would rather be Catholic than dead, so I would, I would have converted. But sometimes the, the people who converted managed to escape from Catholic countries and went to Protestant countries or Muslim countries where this uh, wasn't enforced. And the rabbis created this legal device called Kol Nidre, whereby the community would say, if we were forced into anything to make a vow, it doesn't count. It's null and void now that we're free to, to, to live without it. Over the centuries, because the situation has changed, the value or the meaning of kol nidri has changed. So now, in many synagogues, it's about rash promises you make, not to another person, because you have to try that. You have to try to fulfill those but rash promises you make to yourself or to your, your God or your you know, greater power if you have anything like that. So I, I sort of make the same rash promises every year around um, the time when I see how fat I've become. <laughs> and, and I go, I promise this year it's going to be different. I'm not going to eat over at the ice cream place. And, I'm not. and then, of course, I do. And then I can either, so then I have a choice. I can feel bad about my not being able to keep a promise, or what Kol Nidre says is, vows or promises I made rashly without thinking are null and void from the moment I made them. So yeah, we tend to do that. You know, God, if you only do X, I promise to always be good. And then that works for a couple of weeks, and then you're not good, and then you're, you have the extra weight of all these unkept promises and vows, Kol Nidre says, you're free from those. Not only are you free from ones you made last year, but it's an anticipatory freedom. It says, you're going to do it again. This is just human nature. 
So when you do it and you make some crazy promise, again, not to another person, but to yourself or God, when you make some crazy rash promise in the future, in the next year, Kondre says, be cool, it's all right. You're going to do that, but if you don't fulfill it, don't let it weigh you down. So the first step is to get, you know, to ask for forgiveness from anything you've done to other people. This one is to free yourself from what you're going to do to yourself with these crazy promises and vows. Does that, does that make sense? You follow that idea? There's no, I mean, there is a, a, a whole long legal thing the rabbis created that a cantor chants three times during a, a, the, the services. But for our purposes here, just keep in mind, or just as you're, as you're planning the new year, you can just say to yourself, I know I'm going to make stupid promises to myself or whatever. And they're not gonna, I'm not going to follow through. I'm going to forgive myself in advance. Right? Hopefully other people forgave you for what you, did, what you did last year. I'm going to forgive myself in advance for being a jerk, not toward other people, but making stupid vows in the coming year. So that's the second, the second element. The third element is a look at what you've been doing for the last year. And the way I used to teach it in my congregation, I made it pretty practical, is we would spend time, people would, they would get sheets of paper with um, columns marked on it, stop, start, and maintain. And the idea would be to go through your year and make a list of all the things you've been doing that you should stop doing. So you put those in the stop column. Then you go through and you think of all the things you want to start doing, and you put those in the start column. And then in the maintain column are things you've been doing that have been working out well, and you're proud of them, and so you write those in the maintain column. And that's like your, your roadmap for the coming year. I'm not going to do these things. I'm going to try to start doing these things, and I will continue to do the third column, what's in the third column. So that's the third element of making the new year. So forgiveness for the last year, forgiving yourself for what's coming, trying to set yourself on the roadmap that you'd like to live. Then the last one is recognizing that you have no control over any of this. Right? So you're, you're setting it up like you were in charge. But in the end, you're not in charge. There, there's a prayer that lots of people know in its Leonard Cohen version. And I meant to bring it and you know, um, play the, the song, or, or have you play the song, but I won't do that. Uh, but it's called, in, in the, in the uh, Jewish tradition, it's called Unatana Tokef. And this is, you'll recognize it if you know Leonard Cohen. Though he does a different, you know, he, he switches it around. But anyway, here's the, I'm gonna read the prayer to you. On Rosh Hashanah it is set, on Yom Kippur it is sealed. Who shall live? and who shall die? Who will live the fullness of each day, and who live as if already dead? Who shall be sustained by the waters of compassion, and who consumed by the fires of anger? Who shall live by peace, and who by violence? Who shall be fed by friendship, and who shall starve for lack of love? Who shall drown in life's storms, and who shall learn to ride them out? Who shall be impoverished by endless desire, and who shall be enriched by simplicity and joy? And then it doesn't tell you, <laughs> right? It's not like, jeez, am I going to live or die? And then you get like some, 
you know, like in the, uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the show with Groucho Marx, but the duck comes down with a little magic word, right? You and bet you, your life. You bet your life, right? So, well, I live or die, and then the duck comes down, and oh, you're going to live, or oh, you're going to die. You don't know. It just says, who will live and who will die? Well, who knows? You just don't know. You don't know it about yourself. You don't know it about anybody else. The future is not only unknown, it's out of your control. You can maximize the possibility, the, 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 you know, statistically, the percentage of, of you know, maximizing happiness by doing X, Y, and Z. But there's no guarantee. So you've taken it as far as you can. You've cleaned up last year's mess. You're freeing yourself from next year's mess. And you're trying to order your life in a way that, that speaks to you and, and that, that makes you feel proud about how you live. And then you say, but who the hell knows? And I have to, you know, I have, I, in a sense, I have to just sort of give it up. I'm going to do what I can, but ultimately I have no control over this thing. That is usually the hardest of the four things to do. Because we so desperately want to believe we're in control. And, and you may believe that. And you may be right. But I doubt it. <laughs> I, I don't believe you're in control. I don't believe that, that um, any of us are in control. I'm not sure there's anything controlling in the universe. Just stuff happens. And we have to live with whatever it is that happens. So right now, for example, my mom's in the hospital. She um, has um, congestive heart failure. And, you know, we thought she was going to die and I was going to get, I was getting ready to fly out and, and have Frank give the talk today. But, <laughs> but I always pick on Frank. I don't know. Frank is like my younger brother. I have no idea why I feel that way toward him. But, um, uh, thank you. <laughs> if I hurt you in any way. <laughs> um, and then she recovered. I mean, she's still in the hospital, but she's going to go home, back to her apartment. Uh, her, so, so that's my mom. My sister's mother-in-law, and my sister lives in this, all my family lives in the same neighborhood. They're within five minutes of each other, except for me. I'm smart enough to get out of charge. But they all live together. So my sister goes to the hospital to see my mom every day. And I said to my sister when she called and told me this was going to happen, I said, your mother-in-law is going to end up in the hospital. Because I just knew that her mother-in-law could not allow my mom to, <laughs> to have all the attention. And the next day, her mother-in-law falls down, smashes her head, and has to go to the hospital. I said, I told you. Because <laughs> it's just, it's just what happens. Now, was she in control? I don't think she was in control. She's driven by these, this need, you know, this, you know the, the St. Munchausen kind of thing, where he's, she's driven by this need to, to, for attention, and she gets it by you know, getting sick or whatever. I just knew that was going to happen. But my mom's situation, I didn't expect that. No one expected that. Then we expected her to die, and then she's not going to die, which is both a joy and a concern, right? It's a joy that she's still alive and a concern that my sister is still frantic trying to, to deal with this fact that she's going to be in and out of the hospital now forever. We don't have control. Can we live without the illusion of control? I mean, 
The first three things are in our power to do. I ask you to forgive me. I try to set it up so I can forgive myself if I make stupid vows. And then I, I try to see what's working and what isn't working and do my best to, to, to shift my, my behavior to the things that work. But in the end, I have no control. In the synagogue, when I had a synagogue, and we would wrestle with this issue of not control, you see, people were not happy. They wanted to believe, and the traditional liturgy says, you can actually, because the, the, the imagery in Judaism is, and it's ancient, so don't take it literally, though I grew up in a household that did, that there's a God up there somewhere with a gigantic fountain pen. I'm assuming it's a Mount Blanc because it has the Jewish star on the end of it. <laughs> and a giant book, he's got the book of life and the book of death, and he writes your name, because it's a heat, right? He writes your name in one book or the other. And then, that's, that happens tonight and tomorrow. And then you've got the, the next uh, eight days to talk, if you're in the book of death, to talk God out of it. And it says you can do that. You can do it by giving charity. So you can, you know, bribe God and say, hey, look, I'm going to give to this charity. Get me back in the book of life. You can, you know, plead. You can do these different things. And according to the ancient rabbis, they all work. But if that were true, nobody would die. <laughs> so they don't work that well. But the idea was that who, would, who could live not knowing? So you simply go through the motions and say, oh, this is, this is going to work, and, and you don't worry about it. I don't have that fallback. I don't have that God. I don't even have that fountain pen. <laughs> but, um, I just don't have, I, don't, I won't say I don't have the need to be in control. Maybe I do, but I know I'm not, so I don't try to pursue control, at least not in a conscious way. Maybe there's other things I do. Anyway, <laughs> no, Jews don't knock on wood, because that's the wood of the cross. We don't, we don't knock on wood. I don't know what Jews knock on if they knock on anything. But, you know, we probably have all these little things we might do unconsciously that gives us a sense of, of being in control. Don't step on a crack you know, when you're walking on the sidewalk, whatever it might be. Carrying a rabbit's foot. Anyone carry a rabbit's foot? Um, I used to carry a rabbit's feet. They weren't real rabbit's feet. I hope not. They were. They were. They were? <laughs> uh, now i got to talk to the rabbits. That <laughs> if I've hurt you anyway, there's this limping rabbit going on. <laughs> you know, I'd like to see a rabbit carrying a human foot. <laughs> that, would, that would balance the scales. So we probably, you might do all these, kind, these things to maintain the illusion of control, but really you have no control. So this fourth element of the most difficult of them, the four. This fourth element is to enter into the new year with a radical sense of not knowing. Not knowing. In the Zen tradition, uh, no, I can't remember the guy's name. It's a Korean Zen master, Seong, I think, who, who wrote a really wonderful book. And it's, and it's called Only Don't Know. <laughs> That's all you got to do is not pretend to know. You don't know what's going to happen in two minutes. So don't pretend. Only don't know. So that when you enter into what happens in two minutes, it's always fresh. It's always a, a, a surprise. But more importantly, he says, if you enter into 
the next moment without knowing, you always respond to it with clarity and authenticity. And the analogy he uses is the analogy of uh, ringing a gong. So he says, no matter how often you ring the gong, no matter where you ring the gong, it always rings true to itself. It has no idea of how to ring, right? It just rings. Even if you don't do a good job, you do that, and it's not a singing bowl. Even that, it'll just respond authentically to whatever the situation is. And uh, Master Xiong says the same thing, that if you don't have a preconceived notion of what's going to happen next, your response to what actually happens because you're free from, from a notion of what it's supposed to be, your response to what actually happens is fresh and true, authentic, and uh, integral to, to your, your very being, which he assumes is, is good, is, is ethical, is moral. So can you live with radical not knowing? That's a rhetorical question. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to turn to people and say, can you live without knowing? Because you, you don't know. Right? You don't even know if you, can't, if you can live without knowing. It's all a matter of constantly cleansing yourself of the notion of control. So I'm going to end with this. You've probably seen me do this before, but this is, this just meant so much to me, and I think it's apropos to this. So one of my great teachers was Father, I say is, even though he's dead, was Father Thomas Keating, major Catholic mystic. And I went to visit Father Thomas on almost his deathbed. I thought it was his deathbed. He thought it was his deathbed. But who knows, he lived longer than we expected. So I spoke to him on the phone when he was actually getting ready to die. But I went to visit him when we all thought he was getting ready to die. So he said he had 15 minutes for me. That's about all the energy he had. Though he ended up spending 45 minutes just one-on-one, -on -one, and then they actually wheeled him into my, my workshop that I was doing for the monks at his monastery. And we were sitting there in the library of the monastery, just the two of us. And Father Thomas, even in, in his dying, is a very tall guy who never slouched. You know, he didn't... My, my grandparents got older and more and more bent. Father Thomas was always graceful and, and upright. He was in a wheelchair, but he's sitting very comfortably, but very tall in the wheelchair. And I said, you're dying, which was not news. <laughs> it wasn't a shock, he knew that. So I said, you're dying. How are you doing this? And his answer was, I'm dying the way I lived. Now, he didn't know the four points of you know, how to make a new year. But I think the points of, of forgiveness, you know, apologizing to others, asking for forgiveness from others, forgiving yourself from crazy things that you're going to do, living your life with as much integrity as possible, and then not, you know, freeing yourself from the, the need to know or to control, is apropos to what, is, is in what he just, what he's about, what he said to me and what I'm about to say to you. So he said, I'm dying the way I lived. And he's sitting in the wheelchair, and he takes his hands, he places them in his lap, and they're like this. And he brings them up, and he says to me, every time Thomas came up, and then he let his hands fall to his lap, I let Thomas go. 
So what I heard was, every time the story of Thomas came up, every time the story of self came up, every time the notion of I'm in charge came up, he let Thomas go. So that he met the next moment without the baggage of the prior moment. So he did that a few times. Whenever Thomas came up, whenever Thomas comes up, I let Thomas go. He says, that's how I lived. This is how I'm dying. Thomas comes up, I let Thomas go. Thomas comes up, I let Thomas go. He does it a few times. Then he goes, Thomas will come up, I'll let Thomas go. Thomas is not coming back. And that's dead. I'm dead. So he's living his life constantly freeing himself, you know, in a way, according to these four points, constantly freeing himself from himself. And then being with whatever arises in the next moment. So then I said, just to finish the story, because he's a Catholic priest and a monk, and he's been one since he was 16. I said, yeah, but you're Catholic. <laughs> Which was also not a surprise to him. <laughs> I said, you're Catholic, so where do you think you go when you die? Now, I've known him, at that point, 40 years, maybe more. Since 84, he died just a couple years ago, so someone else did the math. But, so, so almost 40 years. And he looked at me like, decades you've been my student, and you've learned nothing. <laughs> nothing. And he says, you don't get it. Thomas will come up. I let Thomas go. Thomas doesn't come back up. There is nowhere for Thomas to go. There's nowhere to go. You're just the rising of the universe, and, you know, the, or the, the waving of the ocean, back into the ocean. There is no place to go. There's no place where this keeps happening. It's over. Now, what that experience of over is, he's a Catholic, I have no idea what, he's, what he thinks the experience is. We didn't go on after that. But from my Hindu training, or my Jewish training, the Jewish training is that that final letting go is what we call the kiss of God, this moment of ecstasy where God, where you become one with, with the divine. In my Hindu training, they call that Sat Chit Ananda, which is the nature of the divine. Sat being pure being, Chit is pure consciousness, Ananda is pure bliss or ecstasy. So there's this moment when you have, just before Thomas is gone, just before you're completely melted back into the universe, there's this moment of absolute ecstasy when you get the whole thing, because you are the whole thing. And there's some kind of, and the bell doesn't do it justice, but that's all I've got. There's some kind of pure response that happens at that moment. And it's pure being, pure consciousness, pure bliss. And you're gone. The consciousness and the, the being consciousness, bliss, according to the Hindus, remain, but it's not you anymore. It's just the oceanic reality. So, I'm giving you October, November, December, three months. <laughs> I mean, if you're Jewish, you've got about, I don't know, five hours. <laughs> but if you're not, and you want to look at this in the context of January 1st rather than uh, Rosh Hashanah tonight, consider these four things and use them as a way of making a new year, knowing in the end that you have no control. Thank you.